you're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of the Book Talk Today podcast. Today, we are joined by Kinde Andrews. Kinde is the UK's first professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University, where he led the establishment of the first Black Studies program in Europe. Today, Kinde is here to discuss his new book, The New Age Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Kinde, it's a pleasure to have you on. Good to be here. Great to have you on. Like I said, the book was a fascinating insight for me. I think to understand the formations of, of global empires and to understand and history itself is is very important. I think a great place to start would be, how would you define the New Age Empire? So the New Age, really, and why I call it that is because we had an old age, which we kind of associate with slavery, colonialism, genocide. It's kind of vi- very violent, very European empire dominated. And still now, when we talk about racism, we kind of have it in this kind of historical moment. That, that was a moment that passed, that's finished. Uh, why do we keep talking about slavery, et cetera? But what happened in the Second World War, that didn't go. That just changed, right? We just we just molded into a new age where you have the same logic, which is white supremacy, black and brown life is disposable. It's just managed differently. So in the new age of empire, you do actually have the violence sometimes. Sometimes you do. But genuinely, genuinely um, there was a recognition that you couldn't maintain that level of violence because people resist. Uh, European empires generally crumbled and that, that kind of nation state led way wasn't going to work. Uh, there's a shift to America as kind of the heart of the new age of empire, um, which manages it through financial institutions, etc. But it's still the same system. It's still the same logic. And we're not in a different phase. It's just, well, it's a different phase, but it's not a different thing. I think that's, that's the key I'm trying to make in the book. Yeah, the nature of it hasn't changed. It's just the way in which it's enacted. Like you said, it's changed from the, the violence uh, so much as it's changed to, for instance, financial institutions. And in the book you talk about, whether it's the IMF or the World Bank or the UN, in fact, that you talked about in the book and how those institutions have just become vehicles for this for this type of thinking. Yeah, exactly. If you think about it, I mean, <laughs> go to any de- undeveloped country and say IMF, World Bank, and they will think about them in the same way we talked about British Empire because they're terrible, right? They, they're, their role is to go in there and to insist on a economic outlook so you have to when, when you take imf money you have to sign up to these strings which is basically allowing the west to take all your money from you i mean you simply put right um and that's what the purpose of these institutions are so you don't need the violence anymore um because you have financial economic control one of the in the early part of the book you started talking about a bit of a scathing attack on kantian philosophy or, or Kant in in particular and i think it would be a good place to start because i think one of the main concerns at the moment especially with this retreat to nationalism is the discussion about geography and you talked about moral geography and in regards to immigration it's a very important topic to discuss do you still believe that moral geography is a concept that hasn't left us and that is a key part to play in in global immigration oh completely i mean if you think about kant's moral geography which is in terms of its output we kind of remember his moral philosophy but his moral geography which is just racism right white supremacy the idea that because of climate this this dictates uh, the racism dictates who's clever and who's not clever and because it's too high in Africa, Africans are stupid, basically, right? Which is what he believed. That was a large part of his output. That wasn't like just a couple of couple of papers. It was a big, significant chunk of his work. And it is this idea that there is a hierarchy around the world of who is fully human. And as Kant says, in his view, it's the white race who have all the talents, who have all the reason, who deserve to be at the top. And then there's Africans at the bottom, black people at the lowest, and there's a hierarchy in between. And if we're honest, if you look at global inequality today, that's exactly what it looks like, right? Sub-Saharan, sub, so-called Sub-Saharan Africa is the poorest part of the world. White people live in the West, which is the richest part of the world. And there is a hierarchy in between. And when even when we think about something like rights, like the UN talks about the right to life, the UN is supposedly about global equality, but justifies the fact that the conditions in the underdeveloped world are so vastly different than they are here. And if you think about the immigration debate, well, this, that's just a perfect example. Mm. I mean, why is it that uh, Theresa May, Theresa May um, decided to, she didn't want to any longer support saving Africans drowning in the Mediterranean um, who were trying to cross over to come into Europe because she was, she, the actual language they used was it would act as a deterrent. 
right? Like it's, it's actually better to have a deterrent. If you don't save people, there's a deterrent for people to come. So it's perfectly fine. So the deterrent there is black people drowning in the sea. I mean, that's, that is clearly the logic of white supremacy. And yeah, an immigration debate is perfect. You can see that play out perfectly. One, one thing I was thinking, though, is that's not I wouldn't consider that to be white supremacy per se, because like in the book, you talk about how the image of, for instance, black people being the inferior race started in the Arab world. And, you know, I'm, I'm Muslim, so then I read a lot about Arab history and in, in, in reference to religion. And there was a big story between the prophet and the relationship that he had in in the equality of of minorities within the Arab peninsula. So I wouldn't necessarily equate that to white supremacy per se. It's more the fact that nation states have their way of dictating one race over another or one. Well, yeah, I mean, well, anti-black racism isn't just European, right? So straight away, like, Definitely, there's definitely, you look in the Arab world, you can see, I mean, even slavery, like the idea of slavery, Europe essentially takes it from the Arab world, right? But that doesn't mean it's not white supremacy, because when Europe kind of takes on these ideas and embeds them into their systems of governance and ways of understanding the world, uh, that is white supremacy. And so when, if you look at our immigration policy, you should even look today at the COVID, the COVID list of countries, which are where you, can't, you, have, to, you, have, to, um, you have to hotel quarantine, why is the United States not on that list? The United States is a, like the, one of the worst countries in the world for COVID, but somehow it's not on the list. Look at that list. It's just black and brown places. It's so bad. Like, it's so clearly racist. Where you have one country which clearly is terrible and you should, should but because it's, you know, white, what's the country we don't do that? So I think you can have, you can, you can accept that anti-black racism isn't just in the West, but then still say, look, when the West has, has embedded it into their view of white supremacy. I think with India and Pakistan, it's so complicated because so much of that, Relates to the British Empire, right? Like, even the fact that India and Pakistan aren't the same. I mean, this, is it really two different countries? I mean, so much of that links into the empire and how British ideas and I'm not sure it's that separate. To be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's embedded. I, I I agree with you. Like my granddad, his family was uh, displaced by the partition between India and Pakistan. So he originally lived in Delhi, and then he had to move to Pakistan. So like that, uh, the stories he tells me is. Is, yeah, graphics. Sorry, I don't particularly want to get into that too much. One of the one of the things you talk about, and I think is somewhat related to this, is the idea of the Enlightenment, and this idea that Western Enlightenment was some sort of revolution when it came to thinking, um, and how that level of thinking wasn't really a European way of thinking. It was taken from whether it's the Arab world or. Uh, whether it was taken from the Greeks, whatever it might be. And, and you did reference one book, The Map of Knowledge, which sounded incredibly interesting. So I actually have bought that. So it's on its yeah. way. Um, yeah. And it was actually a quote that you, that you wrote in the book says, just as Europeans whitewashed the Muslims out of intellectual history, so the Greeks did the Egyptians. Um, can you just speak to that a bit? Yeah, so the conceit of the Enlightenment really is the idea that all these ideas about science and rationality, these are all European and but shedding light on the rest of the world, I mean, that, is, that is utter nonsense. Like, really, it is. Like, if you look at astronomy, if you look at science, look at mathematics, you look at really everything, there is there are roots of that around the world. So prior to, when Columbus sells the ocean blue in 1492, Europe's behind. Europe's behind everywhere. Europe may be the only part of the world in the dark age. Like, Europe is backwards, right? Um, at that point, it's the Muslim world is predominant. And nobody at the time would disagree with this. It had the libraries, it had the... Um, all the manuscripts, it was leading in science. The Muslim world was massively predominant and influenced Europe. Because don't forget, the Moors took over Spain for like 700 years. So this is kind of, there's a real strong root of knowledge in there. And what happens, it's the same time, actually, it's 1492-ish. It's not coincidental that it's the defeat of the Moors that kind of that allows the rise of Europe to, to, to exist, etc. And there's literally, they actually white, genuinely whitewash the knowledge. So there's a massive book burning. Uh, where they take all the Arabic books, they translate it into um, Latin and they burn all the Arabic books, change the names to European scholars and pretend that they were European, right? And we saw a similar thing uh, with the Romans and the Greeks in terms of Egyptian knowledge. If you actually got trace all the way back, think about you in, in school, I learned that Archimedes came up with pi in Greece. Well, the Egyptians are thousands of years ahead. And if you look at the, um, I think in the book, like, I, know, I probably won't get this right because I wrote it a while ago, but in the book, the... Um, I, as I drew on the reference to the fact that the Great Pyramid in Giza, the circumference of that, something like half a circumference, is an approximation of pi. So it's clear that they knew pi long before the, the Greeks. But there is this, this, this pattern in European thought 
of taking stuff that was <laughs> from somewhere else, completely whitewashing it and pretending that you, you started it. And, and that really is what the Enlightenment is, is based on in many ways. I mean, you gave the reference uh, in the book to a story in which you were in, in, a sc- in, in school and you were sort of questioning your teacher about a certain topic. And they said, well, it, it isn't in the exam, so we're not going <laughs> to teach it. And I, I, I felt that one deep because I know that there was many situations in which I questioned because, you know, when you're at home or, or when you do sort of your religious reading and re- a big part of religious reading is history. So you read history and then you read one part of history and like, wait, that doesn't sort of align at all. So do you think a lot of it is down to education? Because you you even had this quote earlier in the book that said the world can only ever be equal as the knowledge it's built upon. So do you feel like a large part of this is education more than, for instance, an overturning of the system? Well, it's, it's, it's intertwined, right? So for instance, like, I kind of almost can't blame the Enlightenment scholars for believing that everything is European because they're, they're, they're using a load of texts with Latin names in it. And they, I'm sure they don't know it's Arabs because how would they know? They're just, they're just reading the text they've got, right? Um, and so then from that, they go, oh, no, Europe's the best, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is partly about education, but that is also systemic because it is the systemic violence prior to the... So the Enlightenment can't exist without the 200 years, two, 300 years prior to that of complete violence, barbarity, um, you know, the burning of books, the taking over of Africa, the, um, the, the emergence into, into, into Asia, Right. So the system is really important. And in, in, in fact, the, yeah, you, think you can't blame people like Ken. The books they're reading, Africans are obviously inferior because they're enslaved. Right. So we've got the evidence. They're, they're slaves. So they must be inferior. The think about Darwin, survival of the fittest. A large of that is based on the idea of the feeble races dying out. Well, Europeans killed all the, 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 the natives in the Americas. So again, you've got evidence. Right. We've done it. So we can see the feeble races. The white race is superior. The white race controls the world. So this, without that system, system to support the knowledge, it wouldn't. It would have been much harder to put, to push past that across. So it's 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 both. You have to have a different version, a different knowledge, but you really have to have a different foundation of society. Mm. The interesting thing for me when I was reading it was that foundation. Is it capitalism? That foundation, or is it something a bit deeper? Because when I was reading it, I thought the capitalism is one part of it, but then there's a sort of a hierarchy of human interaction that sort of supersedes capitalism because that's a social construct whereas hierarchies is an inherently a human biological determinant it's part of nature to have hierarchy so is it capitalism itself or is there a other deep-rooted system there that you think needs to be addressed well i think the, the version of capitalism we have cannot be separated from white supremacy they just connect they just, just so connected you can't even separate them because to have capitalism what the cap like to have capital expansion to have industrial like industrialism to have even cities, even have even democracy, it's so much based on the erasure of black and brown people. Like it's necessary. Like you for the, the West to emerge, that Atlantic system, which is necessary to genocide people in the Americas, enslaving mm-hmm. Africans, that is a central feature for what we think of now as capitalism to emerge. So the version of capitalism we have just cannot simply cannot be separated from white supremacy. Like they they're intertwined. Um, and so to think of them separately is, is, is the wrong way to think about them. They are they are they are combined. Um, and it's not just about hierarchy because yeah, people disagree. People, there's always people going to be um, challenging each other. But this idea of, of white supremacy, that this life is valuable above all else and everything else is disposable. There's something, I don't know if there's something, maybe there's not something unique about it, but the way that it gets embedded into the economic production, that is unique. And I, I don't think we've seen that before, actually. And so there's a, there becomes this capitalism becomes in literally inseparable from white supremacy even today so actually today when we look at the same logic happening that's why you kind of need lots of poor black and brown people to, to facilitate what we have today i think that's the distinction okay i, th- I think it'd be good perhaps to define what white supremacy is i, I don't know whether we've i don't know whether in the book <laughs> that you addressed it i can't remember in, within the book that you addressed that definition i mean i have my own definition of what it is but how, how would you define white supremacy then I mean, basically, it's the it's the idea that white people are superior, that black and brown life is disposable, and then there is a system in place to support that. I mean, that's a key thing. Not necessarily an idea. Like, I can think black people are superior, whereas much as I like, right? But there's no system to support it. But there is a white supremacy is a system. It is the it is the economic system. Like I said, it isn't a coincidence that Africa is the poorest part of the world and the white place is the richest. That's white supremacy. There's no other way to put it. You look at the black uh, the black uh, wealth gap in the UK. Again, that's white supremacy. It's, it's systemic. 
And I think that's really important to think about it. It's systemic. It isn't about, you know, it isn't about racist people saying very bad things and it isn't about, isn't about neo-Nazis and the capital. And yeah, that's one manifestation of it, but it's actually the system itself is white supremacy. That's an interesting point that you made because I often think that when people are annoyed at whether it's the EDL in the, in the UK or those far right groups, and they're saying that they're the reason why we have the system, I feel like that's sort of sort of not the right thing to be approaching because it's not for instance those people it's the people that are sitting in the offices and dictating what the media outlets are the the other people that you need to be going after rather than the poor guy who's sort of divorced from his wife who's now joined the edl because he (laughs) i mean he's not the he's not the person you should be going after so i definitely think it's a systemic thing the thing that i one the thing that interests me when I was reading the book, and we touched on it briefly just now, was that transatlantic slavery, the the system that was in place. I mean, I knew of it slightly, but I didn't know the extent of the damage um, or, or the effect that it had. And in growing the industrial revolution or, or the sort of the, the capitalist system across the, the whole world, really, but in Europe in particular, It'd be good to just describe that, the impact that that had and, and the defining role that that played in not only the effect of the, the minorities, um, the black and brown, but also in the growth of um, Western empires. Yes, yeah, so the landing system is, is absolutely essential. Right? So when, when Columbus goes to the Americas, finds first is gold. So the first thing which uh, enslaved is gold, largely in Brazil. Um, it's Portugal and um, Spain who are kind of dominant. This is important because gold, this is actually, again, when we think about gold and gold so important now, there's a very clear link there, right? And that gold is important because that starts to bring some wealth. And interestingly, it's actually tra- gold and silver. The first demand for that is actually China, it's actually the East. So we're already starting to see there's a global, a kind of global system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important, but it's also limited. So there's like Spain and Portugal start off predominant but because it's gold, it stagnates. What really unleashes the West is when it starts to be commodities which are necessary for production, right? So gold and silver are kind of like precious jewels. They're nice to have, but they're not productive. And it really is when you start to do sugar, where you can commodity, um, things like tobacco um, and cotton. I mean, cotton is probably the big, big, big one where it really changes everything. And when you start, and this is, and these are all produced through slave labor, uh, which is 300 years of free labor. Like you've just literally extracted millions, tens of millions of people the estimate is at least 12 million people were stolen from the African continent. And that's to the low end of the estimate. Um, it's an estimated that pr- that only probably only accounts for about a third of the people who were actually taken. Mm. People, about 40% of people died resisting on the continent and about up to 40, 50% on the ships. So you're talking about that, that 12 million times that by at least three. So the minimum estimate is 36, 40 million. And there's much higher estimates that you're talking about potentially 100 million people taken from the African continent. Yeah, and, you said in the book that even up to 24 million died during that. Yeah, period. I mean, yeah, it's 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 a it's a huge, and you can imagine like, so what that does is one that they are then used as commodities, and this is the difference between the Arab slave trade. So the Arab slave trade actually lasts longer and it slays more people, but the Arab slave trade is is very different in the sense that it's 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 mostly for um, it's mostly rich people who have as have taken servants, right? They don't earn money; they're not productive. Right. That's, I mean, the, that's, the, that's the Arab way to do it. It's just <laughs> <to> show people. <laughs> they don't care about making money. They just want to show, show to their friends that they've got more women. Exactly. It was very yeah. it was largely like that, right? And there's stories. Yeah. I think I recount the story in the book where the slave traders get really rich, right? Yep. But they got nowhere to spend the money. They got they got all this money, but they got nothing to do with it. That's not the European system. The European system was very different. Uh, Africans are turned into commodities who produced untold wealth through things like sugar, cotton, etc. And it's that wealth which is absolutely essential in leading to industrialization. So the first thing, I'm from Birmingham, we love James Watt over here, but James Watt loved the slave trade because the first, the first thing that they used um, James Watt steam engine for was sugar plantations. I mean, uh, this, it, sugar is the first thing which is, goes, through, the, goes through, the, through that process. And then cotton, obviously cotton is so important to British industrial development. This all slave produced. And what that does is it, is it creates this massive amount of wealth, which then allows the West to take over. Remember, before the West wasn't, Europe was not advanced, it was behind. And it really is the Atlantic system which gives the wealth, the power um, to, to kind of conquer the world. And then if you think about the impact that has on somewhere like Africa, so when Europe goes to Africa, again, something I really want to push on here is that Africa, Africa was not some backwards um, 
naked savages that in the jungle nonsense that we kind of see. That wasn't the case. Africa was again advanced and Europe couldn't conquer Africa. But the point where Europe goes there, they cannot conquer Africa. But by drawing out all these people from slavery, it, it devastates the African continent. I mean, imagine 36 million people, working age, taken away, just that in itself. Um, then the whole political economy changes because people want to defend themselves from slavery. Slavery becomes a major thing. It just totally destroys um, Africa. And then that actually allows Europeans to then come in and conquer the continent. And then you have colonialism. But colonialism in Africa is less than 100 years in most places, direct colonialism, uh, because it takes slavery really weakening the continent um, for, that, for that to happen. So it's, it's, it's slavery is such... Yeah, I, when I was speaking to... Who was I talking to the other day? Melanie Phillips, who's awful terrible right-wing journalists who just oh, putting forward this myth that the slave trade wasn't that part wasn't that big of the part of the economy just a tiny bit of the economy it's the whole economy because without slavery you don't have anything else industrialization just isn't possible and the did world you, does she mean now or does she mean in the past no in the past in the past there is actually i'm having a debate in um in march with a british historian who argues that now, if, if you add up the slave voyages, the slave ship voyages, and say, oh, well, you know, they didn't make that much money, it's just a stupid way to look at it. Because the, unlike in the Arab trade, where the money was in the trade itself, where, you know, you get, you get, traders made lots and lots of money. The money here was not in the trade. There was money in the trade. It was profitable, don't get me wrong. But the real money was in the plantations. It was then, it was in the system. It was in the commodities which was produced. It then goes into the factories, et cetera, et cetera. That's where the money is. So you can isolate out well, how much money do you make from slave voyages. That's irrelevant. The impact on this is about the impact on the wider economy, none of which can happen without your commodities like sugar, cotton, etc. Et yeah, I mean, you, sh you gave the example in the book about the idea about the actual cost of the slave wasn't the actual goal, because there was a, an, a story you gave where they were on a ship and then they're running out of water and then they can give enough water to, to everyone, including the slaves. So I think they threw like 150 overboard or yeah. something. Yeah, so they, don't, they, don't, they don't they didn't particularly care too much about the actual individuals as more what was the efficiency of it and it, it sounds horrible when you think about it because you're talking about real people it's it's very easy to just like in in the debate that you're going to have it's very easy to just say oh there were slaves and then they had this and this and it's i, I feel like when i was reading it, i felt it's very easy to get into sort of a, a checks and balances between what the value was and like no these were actually people yeah, yeah. but they were true but they were 100 commodities and actually the zong the song tells you then it's not just about even the, the <clears throat> sorry that the direct commodity production but things like insurance like like the reason the song yeah. the reason that case came to the court wasn't because of did we murder 100 people it was uh can i claim on my insurance it was literally an insurance case like just imagine that like, this, like somebody kills 150 people and it's an insurance case um and insurance was absolutely so it's companies like lloyd's of london for example mm. started off insuring slave ships that's what they did and then lloyd's of london is Britain's biggest company. That's not a coincidence. <laughs> that seems like it's probably not a coincidence. So yeah, that, that, that's how embedded it is today, I think. The, the thing that I was interested in getting your take on when I was reading all of this is you were discussing the idea of reparations or what reparations might look like. What does that look like in, in your in your view, because I, I, don't, I can't see how that system would work. How would you go about tallying that and, and equating a value towards that? Or do you think it's just the, the value is so astronomical, it would just, like you said in the book, it would just bring the whole system down? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are so, okay, there, is, there, are, there are a number of credible reparations movements. So CARICOM, Caribbean community, want reparations at the minute. Uh, African countries had uh, the organization African unity, wanted reparations. There's a group every year marches in Britain, stop the Mangamizi. There's lots of arguments for reparations. So I don't want to pour scorn totally on them because I, I, I don't I don't want to do that. <laughs> but if I'm honest, if you actually look at what reparations for me is the to tell you you need revolution. Because actually to add up the money, it is too much. That like, is no possible way that how could you account for all of that in all the industries and in all the it just the figure so the best the best example of that would be when the British government paid slave owners reparations which they did we call it compensation but this is called reparations uh to abolish the system in 1834 it was 40 percent of the government's income at the time five percent of gdp that was just to compensate them for their losses that, that now how much would that have been if you were going to pay the enslaved what they were due and in for centuries and it was so large that they only paid the, they, they took a loan from the bank of england they only paid back in 2015 I mean, that's just one, that's just one example. So multiply that by 20 and what you got? The, the, 
the figure in the States is they reckon it's between 4 trillion and 15 trillion in the Caribbean or something similar to that. When you add it up, it's, it's, a, it's an astronomical figure. And I don't think it can be repaid. And then the second part of why, why the problem is, remember, the, this isn't past. So the world still depends on the exploitation of Africa, Caribbean, other parts of the world. And also, it's not just slavery. India, we kind of had to pay India back. The reparations has to be broader, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the world still, the world economy still runs on exploitation. So if all of a sudden all the black and brown countries were as equally wealthy as the white countries, Capitalism would end, like tomorrow, <laughs> would end tomorrow. So there is basically no possible way you're ever going to get reparations, proper reparations. This version of capitalism, because when I, when I think of capitalism, I think of obviously the exploitation side of it, as we've discussed. But then you look at somewhere like China and you're like, that's capitalism kind of with a bit of socialism mixed in. I don't know whether it's a, it's definitely not a better version of capitalism, that's for sure. <laughs> because you, you can look at the sort of the, they've got a whole different situation with the Muslims and the, the retraining and the concentration camps yeah. and, and what they're doing there. That's a whole different situation, but that system or that revolution, what do you think that revolution looks like? Because I don't know. And this is, this is my opinion on it, but I'd like to know yours is I don't think overthrowing the system is perhaps the best way to do it because the system is so, the system does benefit us in some way, or it does benefit those people that are living in, in the countries now. I don't see the, 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 the incentive to overthrow the system. I think there's an understanding of how can we make the system more fair. And I think that's more of a sort of a work in progress more than an overthrowing of the system. What do you think? Yeah, yeah certainly. I mean, look, I mean, this is a big, the big contradiction for me, I guess, but not definitely, I guess for me, right, is, you know, when black people in Britain prior to 65 weren't really part of the country, there was laws that said, you know, you can't get a job, you can't do this, you're really not, you're not really not part of this. You know, we weren't really part of it. So I couldn't really take any responsibility if I was alive in the 1950s. Like, yeah, I'm clearly in the underdeveloped world. But things have opened up enough so that some of us, are. Oh, I'm doing better than most white people. Let's be honest, let's be realistic, right? Uh, so I'm now part of the problem, right? But if you look globally, terrible nine million people die from hunger every year almost all of them are black and brown a child dies every 10 seconds because they haven't got access to food all of them black and brown it's it really is awful like mm. think about the scale of the death from covid which we shut down our whole economy for um that's a drop in the bucket compared to what happens with poverty more people far more people die from poverty last year um than die from covid than will die, and, and will die from covid mm. but so if you actually look globally, the incentive is definitely there, which is why you have this immigration crisis, where so many people are trying to, to leave because their countries can't support themselves. So I 100% agree. Here, I don't think you're going to get revolutionary politics because all of us are kind of part of it. But I think globally, you have to because it is really, it's 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 as bad today as it ever was. So, for instance, I was talking to somebody um, about India. And they were saying, well, isn't India better because you know there's no famines in India anymore? Yeah, but more people died in India from poverty than ever died in famine every year. Like every year, literally every year. Like India is doing okay, but there's so much death from poverty. If we had the same conditions in India here, I mean, again, so yeah, globally, I think the incentive is still there. But I agree here, it's probably not, probably not as much. Do you think that wording it as your part of the problem is, I don't know, is, I don't know if that's the right way to define it. (laughs) I don't know whether you should be or anyone should be saying you're part of the problem because it's not, this is something I wanted to discuss with you is the danger of assuming that the people that came before you, you're responsible for their actions. Because I don't believe that you should be responsible for the people that have come before you. um, You And the actions that they've taken. Well, no, we have to be responsible for what's happening now. If I'm living off the proceeds of crime, and actually, the law says the process. You, oh, of course, you yeah. yeah. But you can't look back in the past and then be like, "Oh, I'm going to take responsibility for the actions that they've taken." You can only look at now and be like, "Okay, what did they do? Let's not do that." Yeah, but like but I said, right now, a child dies every ten seconds because they haven't got access to food because of the because of my wealth. This is the honest truth. I have wealth which is procured off the death of lots of black and brown people. Like it's a, it doesn't make me feel very good to say it, but it's also the truth. If I don't acknowledge it, then I'm. What can I do? It kind of puts. I mean, I don't want to say it too negative because that does sound really negative. <laughs> it does it sound sounds really <laughs> negative. <laughs> and that, and, and there was, that was the that was the the thread throughout the book. I was like, this is bleak. This is bleaker. 
and I'm like, okay, okay, where are we going here? <laughs> yeah, where are we going? Yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would say, I would say about the book is, it is very much a prequel. So, um, back to black retelling black radicalism in the 21st century. I wrote before, and that's kind of got like, a, what can we do? This is what we should do. Da, 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 sure. right? Whereas this is more the revolution is necessary. I just got to, because I, I had a lot of conversations in that book. I, it was clear that I had to make the case first why you need revolution. And it's supposed by, I won't lie, it's supposed to make us uncomfortable. We're supposed, we should be uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, that's a good place to be. It's uncomfortable. And a lot of the books about race now, you read, you end up leaving happy. It's like, if you read a book about racism and you end up feeling uplifted, then I, I think it's failed. As, 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 a, as, a, as a, the responsibility of the book about racism is not to make you feel good. I don't think. I haven't read any, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest with you. So I, I, I wouldn't be best placed. I mean, the reason why I was interested in reading yours in particular was, and it wasn't, the race was a big part of it, but it was more of a systemic thing and a history mm-hmm. thing. I think that's where I my mind goes. When someone just talks solely about race, I feel like it's not placed in anything. You're not placing anything. You're just talking about race as something. Mm. in its in of itself where not not where it sits in the in the wider yeah. picture so yeah. yeah haven't really read many of those i i mean perhaps you can recommend some to our listeners and to me but i i, I haven't heard any good ones i mean there's some really some really interesting like, yeah there's some really terrible books that i would recommend you don't read <laughs> I won't, I won't, no i'll mention one because me and white supremacy oh it's the worst book I've ever read it's like a it's like a health self-help book for whiteness i mean it really is i, I just like what what do we do <laughs> what do we do <laughs> I don't know what well, doing. as in, as in, a, like a therapy session for white people about how to deal with people yeah. who have minorities. Uh, yeah, it literally is like a has day to day exercises and how to deal with your white supremacy. Like, like that. I'm honestly, and it's really popular. So, I, I, yeah. Anyway, I <laughs> there was a how to book about how to white in, with other people. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's I mean, there were white supremacy. It's about, trivializing white supremacy that book does it so so much but there's a really good work so there's a book by kianga yamata taylor called um race for profit which is about uh racial discrimination in housing in, in america that okay. book's amazing i mean that is honestly that's one of the best books ever for a very 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 long time um kianga yamata taylor also has a book on um called from black lives matter to black liberation which is really good um so yeah kianga yamata taylor's work i definitely recommend some, some okay. good stuff Okay, there's, cool. other good, there's other good ones. I'm sure there's other. There's definitely other good ones. <laughs> I'll, start, this, I'll start with those two. <laughs> yeah. Well, six, yeah, six, those six, two at the start. There's a book came out recently called 400 Souls by, um, it's an edited book with Keisha Blaine and Ibram X. Kendi. Actually, Ibram X. Kendi's Stamp from the Beginning is a good book as well. It looks about history of racial ideas. So it's like America has quite a lot of good books coming out. And in the UK, we've got the Carlos uh, Natives. Uh, Afi Wahersh's book on British was quite good as well. It's good as well. Okay more it's quite a few. Like there's some good ones i don't want to say it's all bad <laughs> well I'm, I'm definitely not going to get the to do of how to white supremacy i don't think that one's for me how to white supremacy <laughs> yeah. uh, definitely won't be getting that one on on the american front uh, what was your estimation or, or what was your opinion on black lives matter this past year how do you think do you feel like that is a a revolution of a type against the system and do you think that that's going to be the catalyst for something that you see as being a wider systemic uh, revolution or, or pushback for the next couple of decades do you think it's happening more and more i mean, definitely I mean, certainly i mean i think one of the things that if you if since the 60s you know there was this revolutionary moment where you know are, are we going to overturn everything and again in the 60s this was a possibility um or are we going to try and reform the system and if we're honest uh black politics went and took a very reformist route so you kind of lose the malcolms you lose the pamphlets you lose and you kind of you get you end up with obama right and there is lots of effort to change laws change things change black middle class so things have changed in that regard but it was always a cul-de-sac and i think what that's what people are now seeing is that you know for all of the things that have changed the civil rights movement both in the uk and in the us was widely successful most got most of the things that they wanted but we're still having the same problems, right? And actually in America, you could argue it's worse with mass incarceration, but generally still bad wealth gap, education, police, et cetera. So I think people are now realizing that we need something else. And it, it can't just be about trying to get politicians and it can't just be about trying to change laws. We actually need to look at the economics um, and the system. And I think you can see that with these, with the younger people on the street. I don't think the Black Lives Matter has yet articulated that particularly well, but I think it might do. There was no reason it can't, right? You've got the people, you've got the framework, you've got the passion to do it so hopefully it does spur on uh, a kind of new generation of revolutionary politics i do agree with you though i think it breaks the bounds of just politics and goes into economics 
And I don't know, like, for instance, if you look at, for instance, um, if you look at our community, like the Muslims, I, I think our focus in our communities is a lot more on education, mm-hmm. not so much about seeing it as, oh, okay, we are, we need to educate people so much on what it means to be a Muslim as it is to educate our own communities about what our place in the society is. And I feel like there was a there was a big push in our communities to get sort of interfaith work and all that stuff and that stuff's really important to get obviously conversations with people who are non-muslim but you can't really shout to a non-muslim about this is we're muslim and this is what we do kind of thing it's more about okay how can we empower ourselves to become more in more integrated within the system rather than separating ourselves i don't know if that's something that happens in in your communities as well well, I think, I think the black community has been really good at integrating itself. Uh, and this may have been a problem. Like, I did, if you integrate yourself into a racist system, don't be surprised you get racism, right? What we actually need to do is change the system because the system is so, so problematic. Yeah, I, I don't know, though, like, what's the what's the solution to the system? Do, is that what you're going to try and address in the next book, like you said? Because he's... Yeah, so I said back to black retelling black radicalism, which came out in 2018. Uh, it has a very clear black re- radical revolutionary politics. Not for everybody. There wasn't. No, everyone's going to want to There is a there is a solution. That is, I mean, so what is? I mean, it's, we started the Harambe organization, the Black Unity, which is based on a kind of. I don't know. There's a. I love Malcolm X. When Malcolm dies, he stands the organization of Afro American Unity, uh, which is kind of it's a kind of Pan African organization connected to global stuff i mean i think i said because of because in the uk it's almost impossible to imagine revolution you have to be connected elsewhere like where where the stakes are different so i spent a lot of time in south africa recently Mm. and the stakes are different like that's a different different stakes like that's a place where you could imagine revolution there tomorrow um so it's about connecting our politics here to connect politics there i think that's how that's really the international is how you get the kind of the real kind of change. Do you think that's going to be helped by the internet? Because I think the internet's already helping that. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it is it is and it isn't. Right? It's ironic that we have more connections now than ever, but in some way we're further away from from like radical connections. Because what the internet does and what the the more stuff you have, the more toys you have, the more things you have, you feel like you're more feel like things are better, right? Um, whereas when you're totally locked out. You feel like you understand things are worse. So the biggest black organization that ever existed was the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the Garvey movement in the 20s. They had 5 million members in like 50 countries. They had no phone. There was no internet. There was no nothing. They, they, it's almost impossible to imagine, right? But people were drawn to it because in the 20s, pretty obvious that you needed to do something else, right? Whereas now people that have all the connections together, but it can be, it's a lot more difficult to convince them that actually what we need is revolution not reform so it's ironic you have more technology you ha- are easy to connect but it's actually more difficult as well do you feel like it's it's, it's lacking a leader in some respects i think that oh, the big problem has always been that we needed a leader right a, the problem has always been can you build an it's lacking an organization i think if you go again go back to the una as a template it had a leader you know marcus garvey was hugely important but it actually what the reason it worked was because it had different chapters, there was leaders everywhere. It was leader, leader full is kind of the key, um, the key thing. Mm. But the main thing is convincing people who need it. If you don't, people don't think they need to organize, they're not going to organize. And when people know they need to organize, they're going to organize. Yeah, they need to organize around something. Yeah. And if they're like, like going back to the point you made, if they're benefiting, if they're benefiting from the system, trying to convince them to overthrow the system is not going to work. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm arguing against myself here, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one to fight. I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you because I was reading the book. You start you were saying all these things about overthrowing the system, and then there's obviously a lot of people out there, whether they're minorities or not, that are benefiting from the system. And yes, there is a case to say you know people are are obviously not benefiting from the system, and they are in other countries. But if people don't obviously see that, then and I think this is where the media comes in, as they do a very good job of not showing you that. Yeah. And uh, that's why you need to turn on Al Jazeera from de- from time to time, get a bit yeah. of a do- dose of reality. Anyway, back to the book. One of the things I wanted to discuss was this idea of liberal imperialism. I think yeah. you coined the term from Niall Ferguson and the idea that the Western empires present themselves as working for the good of humanity while maintaining the colonial logic approach, um, which it was uh, founded upon. And I, 
you gave a, a great explanation in the book about the war in Iraq and how they sort of marked that as good for humanity. And then I, I was thinking in my mind, I was like, oh my God, they have done that so many times. They've got into other countries, master as sort of a peaceful resolution and then just completely looted the place. Yes. I mean, that is, that is what happened. It's not new either because it used to be when it's the white man's burden, we're going to civilize the savages. There's a kind of like a whole, like people believe the British Empire was a force for good because it made put train tracks in India, apparently, that, that apparently outdoes all the terrible things they did in India. But, you know, there is there is this kind of, this, especially in this new age, this is really what, where people, they'll go out and say we're doing good, but it's not really doing any good at all. And if you just think about the, the charity industrial complex, right? So countries are poor because we've made them poor, right? That's why they're poor, right? Because we extract all the resources from them. We have wealth here. And then we then say, well, let's give a little bit of that wealth back to these countries we've just devastated. And so even the, the idea that a Western non-governmental organization should be building wells and, and water in African countries, that is the problem. Because no, that is the responsibility of Africa, right? But the African countries can't do it because they don't have any money, right? The world. So we have a whole paradigm which disempowers people and, and actually makes us feel better doing this when actually the thing that we're doing is really an indication of what the problem is, right? But we feel better doing it. So we can do, so we have we create a world which kills children, we donate a little bit of money to save a couple of children, and then we feel better about it. I mean it really is terrible. I mean, honestly, it's 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 in some ways it'd be better to do nothing. I mean it sounds careless again because <laughs> but, you're adding but to the pretty... bleakness here. I mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean you're really pounding on us. <laughs> yeah. It does sound a bit bleak, right? But and I'm not saying don't give money to charity. Obviously, not. obviously you should give money to charity. But it does. I think it just shows you the paradigm that we're in, right? Where, again, if you think about the rights which are afforded to people in the underdeveloped world, it literally is just can they live and can they eat, and that's it. We're not talking about prosperity. We're not talking about really talking about proper education equality. Mm. It's just can we offer the basics so that we don't feel quite as bad that we've exploited them. But even if complete, like so, if you look at the UN goal of ending eradicating extreme poverty. Well, that would be a nice thing to do. But even if you eradicate extreme poverty, you haven't dealt with a the problem. There's still going to be loads of poor people who are relatively worse off. It would just make us feel a bit better, right? Yeah, I think that's where books like Factfulness, and I know you talked about Enlightenment by Stephen Pink. I haven't read Enlightenment, but I've read Factfulness. Mm. And I do like the way that they approach it and said there are making there's making gains but then i read your book and it's like okay we're making gains but we're making gains in the system that we created so it's like well where's the yeah. <laughs> we're great we're making improvements of something that we completely demolished in the first place exactly like a there's a reason why it was like there's a reason why it's like that because before europe it was fine like there was not there weren't families of poverty in africa before europe went to Africa. so yeah it's a bit it's a bit it's it is it's it's yeah it's the idea that because we're making gains is positive it's, it's deeply problematic. And again, think about what the gains are and are we talking about equality? Because we're not like the development agenda is not is not about equality. It's about just taking away the harsher edges of it mm. so that we don't so we don't feel it. Do you feel like it's a national because in the book you talked about the corruption in these countries as well, like corruption in Africa and, and corruptions in, in other countries and how leaders in those countries are actually encouraged to extract money and there's been multiple occasions of individuals that have sort of pushed up back against that system and then got assassinated and just because they're sort of pushing against the established model where is the responsibility on political leaders or do you feel like they're being they're being pushed into a system that already exists and they have to fit within that paradigm otherwise they won't be getting their won't be getting money essentially yeah no, we still blame them like people don't have to like i don't want to like i can 100 percent say that there is no such thing as African corruption. It's European corruption. It's Western corruption. It's a Western system which allows this to happen. And just think about where all this money goes. We keep talking about where all this money goes. Where's it going? It's going to the West, right? It's going to buy property in London. That's why house prices are so, so expensive. Because all these dictators are buying houses in London, right? I mean, this is clearly a Western system. And I gave uh, lots of examples in the book where the like with good luck, Jonathan from Nigeria, they stole a billion a billion dollars got stolen like overnight from Nigeria. But it was like shell. It was that's where the money came from. This 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 is not African corruption, but you still have to blame the people doing it, right? Like you yeah. know, it's still good luck, Jonathan's fault. You don't have to, like you don't have to. You could say no, right? But I guess it's very tempting not to. And given the history, because there is a, as you said, there is a strong history where people reject it. They quickly get deposed or they get killed, etc. But yeah, you don't. Know, but they still have to blame. You still have to blame the people for doing it because you don't. You don't have to. And what we should be doing and what they should be doing is organizing collectively to do something else, right? But, unfortunately 
the, I guess the trappings are too too good. I guess. Yeah, the trappings are too good, and the opportunities there, I feel like, are too much. Because at the end of the day, there's one question about obviously race and the idea of equality, but then individual ambition and human psychology somewhat outweighs that sometimes, doesn't it? If people are given the opportunity to exploit, um, they're going to take it, especially if they've come from poverty from from a point of view. I mean, I remember reading about Pablo Escobar and, and what he was doing in, in Colombia. The fact that a lot of people in the town actually knew what he was doing, but they were getting money. So they sort of just wiped it under the rug. And yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much of that is the case there as well. I mean, it's probably the case to, to some degree, but yeah, there's, there's, I think there's a, I mean, there's a system that's in place, which is longstanding as well. So this isn't a new thing. This is always trying to push in the book as well. You couldn't have had slavery. You couldn't have had colonialism. You couldn't have had, I mean, in the Amritsar massacre in um, India, where it's this terrible event where it literally is gunning down women and children. I actually found out, I was only found this the other day, a number of the British soldiers were Sikhs, killing other Sikhs, right? Like just, it was Sikh people shooting Sikh people with, yeah. the, with the British flag. You couldn't have had any of the empire without a number of black and brown collaborators. So yeah. the fact that we still have black and brown collaborators, that doesn't make any difference. They're following a very long, long-held tradition. It doesn't make mm-hmm. it any less a racist system just because you've got black and brown people administering it or benefiting from it. Yeah, you talked about that as well in reference to the Holocaust, because you can't have something mass like that if you don't have people or individuals who are being subjugated to that treatment actually duping in other people. Like it's not, I mean, I don't know if you, have you read The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn? It's about um, his, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a book about his experience in the Soviet Gulag, and he said how you can't have something to that degree if you're not having people who are like you duping you in or basically spying on you and, and giving you giving you it up to the government. And it's not necessarily individuals aren't bad in of itself. The situation and the system pertains to that. And I think that is perhaps the essence of your book. Is is that would that be right to say that it's not necessarily racism itself or individuals themselves that themselves bad is the system pertaining to it that is established and, and needs to be um, changed yeah that's the point is that the worst thing way we think about racism is in this kind of individual as these bad racist people that you can stop or change etc that's not no the system itself is racism uh which is why even if you're not individually like look i'm not i wouldn't say i'm a racist person but like as i said earlier i'm complicit in a system of racism so i just have to accept that right and so that's, and then once we understand it is systemic, um, then we can also understand we can change things, right? Systems can change. I mean, I, like, I don't want to say the book sounds like really pessimistic, but it, it isn't supposed to be. The point is to say, look, we can change it. It's actually really optimistic because it's saying, look, this is how deeply embedded it is, but we can get rid of all of this mm. if we have a different system and a different system is possible. What we always have to remember is that the West is, what, two, really 200, 250 years of actual supremacy, it's a blip. It is a blip on the timeline of human history. We can do other things. 50 years ago, we were on the cost of revolution and it, was, it really wasn't clear that we'd end up here, which is why so many people got killed, right? It's actually why we got welfare state and we got all the independence because they killed a lot of people and tried to buy us up. Mm. So in 50 years time, if we change and think and do something else, we could have something else. It's possible. Revolution is possible. I, want, I, want, I really want to stress that. It's not, it's not pessimistic. That's if China doesn't take over. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, China's making it worse. Mean... That's that's something with China. China's just taken the model to an extreme, and, and because it's kept its communist bureaucracy, it may actually be more dangerous. <laughs> oh, it's hundred percent more dangerous. Um, I think when you when you pair the capitalist model like they have, it's a weird system. I mean, I went to China in twenty thirteen. I, I went to the, I taught English there at a school for for my summer break uh, after my second year at uni and you see these massive you go to these cities and these cities are huge high-rise buildings they're not even big cities they're just sort of the mid-range cities and they they're looking like major cities and then and then you sort of go around a corner and then you see like a thousand year old chinese hutong and you're like what what system i am and then you go to the forbidden palace and and you see Tiananmen square and you see these concrete buildings and you see the the massive portrait of chairman mao at the front and you're thinking oh my god they're gonna take over because <laughs> they've got the established model and the, the socialist model and they're so indoctrinated with the idea of community and it's for the country and then you throw the the model of capitalism and, and economic prosperity on top of that and oh god I don't know. I mean, it's worrying. He's worrying. He's worrying. And China That's and Africa, worrying. And China and Africa is following exactly the same model as Europe, really. I mean, it really is like you take the wealth, you 
you give really bad deals, you don't, you don't, you know, there's a really extractive relationship. China's and China kind of pretends because it's not a white country because of Chairman Mao's history, kind of pretends it's a friend of it, ain't a friend of Africa. This really is deeply destroying Africa. And also, importantly, China has no problem relying on loads of poor Chinese people to work in sweatshops as well. Right. This is what I said. China's not different. It needs lots of poor brown people to do the labor. And it needs lots of poor black people because it extracts the wealth. And that's how it produces it as well, which is the West. It's just China's just be, has become part of the West. And the only difference that yeah, it might be different, but it, the, the logic will be the same at the, at the end of the day. It's the China's not some revolutionary alternative. It's, it's, it may appear yeah, and it may actually be worse. Oh, it's definitely worse. <laughs> oh, it's definitely worse because they don't they don't necessarily care. I think when I was when I was looking at sort of the British or the Americans, they sort of don't like to put their own people amongst those individuals that are they're exploiting. Whereas I think the Chinese don't care where they're from. It could be their own people. They could it could be anyone. As long as they as long as they follow their their their, their agenda, that doesn't really matter. And I think that's scary because that's where you see the indoctrination and you know people getting moved to camps to make sure they follow the right system and that's scary because that played out over decades i don't know where that ends up surveillance states like yeah. i mean it's a orwellian nightmare really when you, when you think about it yeah no it is if you think about it, especially now with all the, the just the technology there is I and mean, look at what happened to the uyghurs i mean it really is like the, the end point of this is not it's not good I think we need to end this on a more of a positive note. I know we do. No, I'm going to be honest. We've, we've, got a bit, we've got a bit down the line here. Um, for the for the listeners to get a and the watchers to get a, a better idea about the arguments you're presenting, I know we discussed a couple of books before. Which books that would you recommend on the subject? I know you referenced some some great books in, in your book, and obviously your book is a great place to start on this matter. Um, I'm looking forward to read the the map of knowledge. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm looking forward to read that. Which other books would you recommend other people read? Because we're sort of a book podcast, so we encourage reading. So, which ones would you would you recommend as a place to start? I think there's some classics which I reference in the book, which would be Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams, which is really important in terms of understanding the role of the uh, slave trade uh, and Britain. Um, Walter Rodney, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Again, that's more the colonial piece, gives you really good um, colonially. Um, I think you want a different mark. I think the interesting thing is this is, I didn't, I heavily criticize Marxism in the book, but there's a kind of black Marxist tradition. And Claudia Jones uh, has a book called um, Beyond Containment, which is like speeches and writings. And Claudia Jones is a Marxist who was born in Trinidad, went to America, and then was kicked out of America because of the McCarthy trials and ended up in, in Britain in 55 and did all range of things. The West, uh, the West Indian Gazette, the first black British newspaper, started the events that led to the Nine Hill Carnival, but actually theoretically on a different version of Marxism, Claudia Jones isn't a bad place, isn't a bad place to go, isn't a bad place to go as okay. well. And um, yeah, and anything by Kiangi and Martin Taylor, contemporarily about racism now. Kiangi Martin yeah, Taylor. Kiangi Kianga, Yamata Taylor. Kiangi Yamata uh, Taylor. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'll I'll add those to the list. I'll add those to the list and I'll put them in the show notes. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to talk about your book, uh, The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe for more content. Also, visit our website, www booktalktoday.com to subscribe and download the latest edition of our magazine. Join our mailing list to receive the first issue for free to get a taste for the value-packed content that we are offering. Book Talk Today, for readers, by readers.